BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ... How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. A decade before ska popped up on U.S. radio in the 90s, as this new kinetic version of the genre, Fishbone perfected the sound with songs like Skankin' to the Beat and Party at Ground Zero. Though if you heard an upbeat song like Party at Ground Zero and didn't listen to the satirical anti-war lyrics, you might mistake it for something lighthearted. Decades after the group formed, they remained an energetic and creatively progressive band, going in often unexpected musical directions and outdoing musicians younger than them. Lead singer and saxophonist Angelo Moore, our guest today, has remained at the center of all things Fishbone. In addition to his amazing gifts as a singer and musician, he is regarded by many as the greatest frontman of all times. Today we talk to Angelo about his long and unique career with Fishbone and how he's managed to keep his energy alive after all these years. I feel like Fishbone and Angela Moore has come up as much as a band like Operation Ivy or Skank and Pickle in the time that we've been doing this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think two-tone ska was a big thing that helped spread ska all over the world. But after that, Fishbone was kind of one of the main bands. Even though they're not really strictly a ska band, they changed the game and they kind of redefined what ska could be. And the energy that they brought to the genre, just their live performances and just the the insanity that they brought to it. I think if there was anything to their detriment, it's that they played so many different types of music. It was hard for people to really categorize them. I mean, they, they played, you know, funk and ska and metal and they mashed it all together into their own combination. I think that's the thing that made it hard for, uh, fans to completely grasp onto, but they still have, you know, a devoted following. Oh yeah, definitely. And even though Angelo is like technically the front man, they're all kind of front men because they all sing and they all bring ton of energy to it. It's just, they kind of defy a lot of the rules of what bands are supposed to be, but they're also probably one of the best bands. I wish more bands would defy all the rules. 
I want to ask you first about the the recording that uh, Fishbone did uh, last year at Fat Mike's house. Uh huh. In particular, I love the Strange Fruit song. Oh yeah. That you guys did. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like your decision to cover that and and the ways you guys changed it and and everything. Well, it was Mike's idea to do the song. It was his idea, really. Yep, it was Mike's idea to do it. Huh. And I thought it was a great idea. I'm like, hell yeah, I do redo Strange Fruit. Uh, yeah, man. And so we we decided to do that song and uh, put a little extra twist on it. You know, that's the song we're going to be releasing on the release when we release it on Fat Records. That's going to be one of them. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I assumed that, but I wasn't 100% sure that was going to be on the new record. Oh, yeah. What was that performance at Mike's house like? That seemed like that was a good show. Would have been fun to be there. Yeah, man. It was a uh, poolside. It wasn't too many people, but it was just enough to make it a party. You know, and plus he had a lot of room back there so people could spread out. Cause I, cause I, from what I remember, it was in the middle of it was in the middle of Corona, so uh, it was good. Had a couple people swimming. Shit, I went swimming. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part is uh, at, at the end of uh, I think it's at the end of Party at Ground Zero. Chris just chucks his trombone <laughs> into the audience or to the people. yeah, probably land probably. He probably chucked it toward the guy who catches it and it ended up landing on the roof is probably what happened. <laughs> because I didn't see that tr- I didn't see that trombone afterward. <laughs> Nobody's seen it since. Uh, uh yeah, yeah. And maybe the one he brought to rehearsal, I, you know, it didn't really look like that last one. So who knows, man? He's pretty rough with his with his uh his trombone, man, you know. <laughs> But I think a trombone is an easy, easy brass instrument to repair out of all the brass instruments because it's a lot less to get broken. You know, it's all it's all like two pieces, but it's not a lot of keys going on and springs and none of that shit. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember the sax player in, in my old band used to have a um, like a hair tie holding some of the some of the valves together. And it was it was that way for years because you couldn't afford to get it fixed. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I use paper clips, rubber bands, you know, for those last minute those last minute of repairs you got to do right before you go on stage and you realize something's broken, and all you got is a paper clip or a hair tie or a rubber band that that'll do it, man. It's that kind of instrument, you know. What was the like worst uh, or most like haphazard uh, situation you had with your sax that you did at a show that you can recall? Uh, when it got stolen. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst that happened when it got stolen. <laughs> uh, Bakersfield. Playing at Bakersfield, man, with the missing links. And um, I packed up everything, or at least I thought I did. But when I got back home, and when I got, well, I woke up the next day looking for my horn, that shit was gone, man. I called all around and called a, called a, called a venue. Yeah, nothing. You know, so I just had to buy another horn, man. I mean, you know, when that kind of thing happens, it's always a shock, man. And, you know, then you got to wonder the person who stole it. Do they really know what they have? Or are they just, did they just see something laying there and they decide they want to pick it up and run with it and decide with it. And then they find out what they have later and they don't know what the hell they got. Or, you know, it's always some dumbass that does that type of thing, man. Then that, that horn never turned up. That horn never turned up, man. So I just had to buy, I bought another one. $750 horn, you know, 
And uh, I was a little nervous because I thought to myself, oh, my God, I'm going to be spending thousands of dollars. But I just had to do a lot of digging, calling and searching around, man, just to just to just to find something that was affordable for me. You know, and I did. I did, man. I got myself a nice German horn, black and gold. Yeah, so it was like a little a little upgrade for for uh, an affordable price. A Hammerstein. That's the name of it. A, a Hammerstein. Yeah. So when what year was this that your sax was stolen? Oh man, this was like this year, man. This was like Oh, okay. What? Have we tried has anyone tried calling any pawn shops in the area? Man, I no, for real. Like we need to. I think we need to make it our mission to recover this horn. Oh you know? man, that horn is long gone, man. And hopefully, whoever <laughs> whoever got it, whoever got it, gets like a really bad rash that lasts for seven years. I always wish that kind of stuff on people who steal shit, man. You yeah, know, for real. I remember somebody stole my theremin out of the back of my car. I was this is back when I was drinking, like a couple of years ago, man. And I had this this antique theremin. It was shaped like a big oh. black magnet, man. And it was in the back of my car and somebody went in there and pulled that thing out of there and they got it, man. They probably didn't even know what the hell it was. They're just like, oh yeah, we're stealing somebody's shit. Cool, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you always got to lock your shit up, man. Lock your car. Yeah. Lock your car. Make sure you got all your curses ready so when people do actually get over on you and steal your shit, they'll, they'll come out sick on the other end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you ever have the van get broken into on tour yeah yep as a matter of fact you know what man uh fishbone's got this song called elephant chain and it was back in 1980 something when fishbone was playing the plant on ventura i don't know if you remember the plant on ventura but somebody was getting ready to go into the van and steal some of our equipment and norwood had this big chain that he was he saw these people, you know, uh, with, a, with a keyboard in their arm and the van door open, going down the alley and about to turn the corner. And Nord had this chain and he was like, I'm going to whip your ass with this chain. And he was he was going at these people who were stealing Chris's keyboard. And they dropped the keyboard and ran. <laughs> <laughs> but I hear about I hear about bands that get that get their whole line a whole back line ripped off out of their veins oh, yeah. yeah man it's like god damn dude yeah it's been real bad in in uh san francisco especially bands play play in the bay area and uh wake up the next morning and their whole van and trailers all gone yep happens a lot worth it to get to lock your shit up put a lock on your your van you like whatever you got to do man especially if you got a bunch of equipment in there because it's predators out there who don't care about they don't care about your music or your instruments or what or what you have to have to make the magic happen, you know. And everybody needs magic in their life, man. And we, as musicians and artists, we bring the music and the magic, yeah, which saves people's sanity, man. You know, definitely. So when you got zombies, when you got zombies out there that don't really have any of that, any hope in their life for that, they're just thinking about getting their next hit of crack or heroin or they fix or whatever. And they'll, they'll go into there and they'll break your, they'll break into your house or your van and steal all your shit. And it's in a pawn shop and they got their, they got what they need. And then you don't have what you need. Yeah. 
So one one last thing on the on the subject before we go, give us any sort of details about the old saxophone. I'll, I'm serious. I want to try to hunt this thing down. Well, it was a busher, and it was just like brass colored tenor saxophone. We played Bakersfield. We played this show in Bakersfield, man, called uh, actually, man, Chris Barbone a drummer, a sky drummer from this band called Appeals. And he he helped me book this gig. He booked a gig for me out there. And we played at the Bakersfield Theater, man, a really big theater, dude, like a real nice art deco, 1930s style, you know. Yeah, man. So, and at the end of the night, we got out of there. I thought my horn was packed. It wasn't. I checked around. Man, I, ch- I made calls for about a week after that, man, just looking. And after a while, I'm like, man, that saxophone is gone, dude. You know, and then I remember back in the '90s, I had a Armstrong baritone when Fishbone played at the uh, Warfield. The where the yeah the Warfield right, and uh, all the equipment was set out in the back of the Warfield when we were all loading up everything, and somebody, I guess one of the crew forgot my got forgot to put my baritone in the van. Somebody came by and got it. Oof. Yeah, dude, and it was nice. It was black and white swirl marble paint job. So, what is the status of the new album? Are you? Uh, is it still in the works? Are you guys um, have a date, or is it still kind of just being figured out? Yeah, we're yeah we're still working on it. Yeah, you know, we finally um, finished d- demos, and so I guess we're looking to go in with Fat Mike and and finish or maybe start recording I guess around the end of September we got three shows in September man we got we've got a show in Milwaukee on the 16th the 17th we got the Riot Fest and then the 18th we got San Pedro Mm. I'm not trying to wait for any virus to be over the virus ain't gonna be over man it's always gonna be something now you know what I mean the cat's out the bag, the bags, the, the cat's out the bag, the cat's got cooties, and and it's out there now. <laughs> you know, but you gotta protect yourself. It's almost like a rabbit, like a rabbit cat or a rabbit dog or some shit or a bird that you just gotta make a hazmat suit a part of your fashion now. <laughs> yeah. Or a mask a part of your fashion. Man, I had some really nice masks, man. I just lost, I just lost a really nice mask recently, man. But I I figured, well, if I'm going to be wearing masks, I got to have my mask looking really nice and custom. What was your favorite mask that you had? And I had this African-style mask with cowrie shells on it. Yeah, it was like a David Clark, and he's like an artist that does a lot of art at Universal City Walk. And so he made a couple of custom masks for me, man. It was really nice. Very cool. Yeah, man. And plus, you know what? In the age of the mask... We're forced to look in the person's eyes when we communicate with them. Yeah. And so it creates a more a more of a direct communication. Rather, you don't get distracted by the mouth. You have to go directly toward the windows of the soul when you're communicating with somebody if they have a mask on. The weird thing about the mask thing is that... Um... Some people that I know, I just like don't like fully know if I recognize them or not because I guess I'm used to seeing them 
without a mask. And uh, I guess like the, the lower half of the face is part of the, what I recognize about them. And I've like seen people I know and I've been like, is that, you know, so-and-so? And I can't tell. But, right. but then there's other, there's other people. There's people like me because I have a birthmark on my face. So nobody has any problem recognizing me with a mask on. Oh, right. Yeah, because the birthmark, the birthmark, give it away. Or, or would, you call yeah. it, would you call it a beauty mark? Sure. It's a beauty mark. There you go. I had a woman come up to me in Panera once. This was like years ago. She goes, you've been kissed by an angel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good, right? That's good. Yeah. That's good, man. You know, it's like, I'm sure some people are like, oh, I got this mark on my face. So I have to remove the skin tag or some shit like that. And yeah, okay, that's cool. But then again, if you look at it from another perspective, because perspective is everything. Yeah. You can always look at it yeah. as a beauty mark. Oh yeah. Or, I'm, or, I'm, or, or a family uh a family um family heirloom mark or something like that. You know what I'm sure, saying? Yeah. yeah, dude. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine you without that anymore, Aaron. I would look weird, weird without it for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I know Fishbone started, you know, you guys started getting together in like the late 70s and stuff. Uh, you guys were young. But what was your what was your own personal first exposure to ska music? Can you remember the first time you became aware of ska and stuff? I was on the bus and my trumpet player, Dirty Walt, he had his ghetto blaster and he was sitting in the back of the bus. He had his pork pie on and all black and some glasses. And he was playing the selector. Nice. And he was playing too much pressure. And I'm like, man, what is that? And he was like, it's the selector, it's the selector because it's some ska. You know, Walt was gripping at the time. <laughs> so he, uh, yeah, and, but Walt, man, believe it or not, he's the only crip in the band. And he, he had the most, he had the widest musical, he had the widest musical variety of, of music, man. Lots of funk, funk and ska and reggae is what he had. And so... That was my first interaction with Scott when he was playing a selector. And then after that, he showed me bad manners and then the special, well, actually the selector, the specials, and then bad manners. Yeah. And then after the English invasion of Scott, after he showed me all the English Scott, then I got hip to the Jamaican Scott after that. I guess that was like putting the horse before the carriage because, you know, Jamaican Scott came before the English invasion, but I got hip to the English invasion first. And then when I saw their clothes, I'm like, oh man, these dudes are sharp dressed, man. Let me dress like these cats right here. You know, and then plus I was a Jehovah witness at the time. So I was always suited up. I was always suit and tied up anyway. So that, that didn't take, it didn't take me too far out of my zone to be dressed up all the time. Monkey boots, shark skin suits, skinny skinny braces, uh, suspenders, and tie and pork pie. Yep, and so that was my that was my style, <laughs> you know, for a good long time. Before you learned about Scott, what kind of music, like what did you listen to when you were younger? Well, in my household, I would hear a lot of, a lot of soul music and a lot of jazz. Lots of soul and lots of jazz. 
Funkadelic, Earth, Wind & Fire, Sly Stone, James Brown, Count Basie, Louis Jordan, Screaming Jay Hawkins, uh, Charlie Mink, Charles Mingus. Um, did I say Count Basie? My dad played with Count Basie. He played saxophone with Count Basie. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And then there was a lot of gospel. I would hear a lot of gospel off and on, too, in the house. Shirley Caesar, Mahalia Jackson, Reverend James Cleveland. And then uh, Cal Jader. That's like a lot of Latino jazz. Hear a lot of Latino jazz in the house, you know. And Richard Pryor and Flip Wilson and Red Fox and Frank Zappa and The Doors, Led Zeppelin. So that, I was at Billy Joel. So I was hearing a lot of that, you know. But then I discovered all the sky and everything once I started going to school, like like high school. Early, like, like early, like ninth grade, man. Yeah. Is when I started kind of expanding out of, out of all of that. And that's when I, that's when all the ska and the punk, and then I would hear a lot of, I got introduced to a lot of punk rock when I started going to uh, the Hollywood, the clubs, the club scene in Hollywood. Club scene in Hollywood. And when I would go to, cause I was doing a lot of street dancing at the time, man, a lot of pop locking and shit. I never really got into the break dancing scene too much, but I, I was going to a lot of uncle jams army. Yeah. Uncle jams army downtown at the LA convention center, man, which was just like a lot of Prince Funkadelic, the bar case, <laughs> a lot of that stuff. So yeah. So that's, that's what was going on with that. And so, I would drive, I would ride the bus all the way to La Cienega and Cadillac to rehearse with Fishbone at the aquarium. That would be like a two hour bus ride from the valley, Woodland Hills, wow. all the way to into LA. And then coming back, I would stop in Hollywood, pop lock on the corner. I ended up wandering over to the club. I'd hear the, I'd hear all the punk rock shit going on. And, and I was like, well, this music, you can't dance to it. It sounds like people are fighting all the time in the music. But I like the aggression of the music and I like the passion is what captured me. What bands do you remember seeing at this time? Circle Jerks, The Weirdos, The Dead Kennedys. That's Dead Kennedys, man. That's where I did my first stage dive, 1984. Dinner is served. At, at, they had a big roller rink out there. Uh, and... Uh, Damn, where the fuck was that, man? Like North Hollywood or something like that. <laughs> and I went in there and I saw the Dead Kennedys and I saw this skinhead run up and run across the stage and jump off into the audience. And I was like, wow, man, he took flight, man. That looked so fun. So I ran up there. I had a Jerry Curl at the time. And I ran up there in my pop locking outfit. And I ran and jumped off and the crowd parted and I landed right on my knee and I ran over to the side and slumped down in the corner and I watched the rest of the show from the edge of the skating rink, man. Oh, man. <laughs> and that was my first experience, my first, my first punk rock experience, man. <laughs> it didn't stop you from stage diving, though. No, because after a while, after that, I became a, a stage dive junkie after that, man. Yeah. The footage of you, like, stage diving um it's, it's i think it's in the in the fishbone documentary you're at the warfield you're stage diving from like the like the the balcony like 
or whatever. Yeah. Like that how, was that. Are you, were you scared at all when you did that, or was it just? Are you just in this mindset? Where that's you're... that was that's what I call Holy Ghost. That's the Holy Ghost moment right there when you're just taken by the spirit of the music, and uh, it just took me. It took me there, and I felt like I had to trust to the people, you know. But the power of the music took me to that point. Mm-hmm. And once I got up on that balcony, I thought to myself, well, I can't take the stairs down. That would be pretty cowardly. <laughs> <laughs> so I made sure everybody was down there underneath me, man, when I decided to go down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and after that, years later, man, probably like a decade later, some, some, some lady tried to, tried to sue Fishbone for a stage diving lawsuit. This this one, it was like, where did that shit happen? In Baltimore, man. This woman comes into the comes into the show and she's like right up in the front of the stage. The show is in progress. People are stage diving just like they do every night, right along with myself, you know. And so she accused me of uh, uh fracturing her collarbone and ripping her ear and and I'm like, oh, okay, so you're going to point me out, but you're not going to point out everybody else, including the keyboard player that was stage diving at the time. So, you know, man, some people come to the shows with the intention of collecting that money. Mm-hmm. Like somebody, somebody purposefully stepping in front of the car with their car and putting the brakes on so you'll rear end them. Yeah. You know, and so... uh Thank God we didn't, thank God the judge was on our side. And I remember that old ass judge that reminded me of Abraham Lincoln. He said, we must, we must learn to preserve the arts. <laughs> <laughs> and when he said that, I'm like, oh, thank God, dude. Cause we didn't have no money. Yeah. We didn't have no money. We already had a lawyer quit on us once because we couldn't, didn't have money to pay the lawyer. Then this other lady, this other lawyer came in. She was like this old lady, man. But she was, she told, she spoke just like that judge, dude. The lawyer, the lawyer was like, well, your honor, we have to make sure that these guys. And then the judge was like, oh, yes, ma'am. I was like, oh, shit. Okay. I guess they speak in the same language because I sure can't talk it. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, dude. So thank God for them. Fishbone has always been a really uh, eclectic band. Lots, lots of like you already kind of talked about the the influences, the personal influences. But in the in the early years, ska really did seem like a like a pretty prominent thing. Like I'm curious about that. It seemed like even though like some of your later albums would be really all over the place, it seems like the early stuff was like there was a lot of ska in it. Did you guys like think of yourself as like a ska band first and then that you did other stuff in those early days? No, we never really thought of ourselves as a ska band. We just played ska because we were we were playing everything, man. You know, we were playing Rick James and Funkadelic and James Brown in the beginning. And then uh once we discovered ska and reggae, well, we were we were playing that too, you know, and then we started to get into a lot of rock because we were we were listening to a lot of Rush, a lot of Rush and uh, Led Zeppelin, you know. So we really didn't know the difference between genres. We were just playing what we like to hear. 
we didn't realize that outside of the rehearsal space and in the music industry, uh, music was separated in categories. So we didn't realize that, man. As a matter of fact, before Fishbone was called Fishbone, we were called Megatron. So we were getting booked with a lot of heavy metal bands. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so eventually our manager was like, y'all need to change your name, man, because you're getting booked with a lot of heavy metal bands and that that really ain't your full forte. You might be playing a little bit of that stuff, but that ain't all you play. So that's when we called it Fishbone. What kind of bands did you like play with or prefer to play with in those like in those like early to mid 80s when you guys were sort of uh, before you put out your first EP? I know you, you did like you did a lot of punk shows and stuff. Yeah, man, we played with the Untouchables, we played with the Minutemen, uh, the Skeletons. Yeah, Skeletons. Uh, yo, yeah, Skeletons, dude. You had the uh, uh, Paul Hampton played in Fishbone in uh, that's right, for he a sure period. did. Yeah, bless his heart, Paul Hampton, man. Yep, he was he was in there for a while. He was in the Special Forces. I called it Fishbone Special Forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, he was holding it down for a good while too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, that Skeletons. I feel like were definitely an underrated band, especially uh, outside of Southern California. Yeah, because they they were behind the Orange Curtain. Mm-hmm. Yep. Orange Curtain, man. They had a really good ska scene behind the Orange Curtain too. Yeah. You know, we go back there a lot and we play. Good times, man. Behind the Orange Curtain. You know, we never really experienced too much, too much racism behind there, although I would hear about it a lot. Mm-hmm. I guess you really don't experience too much of that shit when you're up on the stage. Because once the music starts, a lot of that racist shit goes away. At least that's 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 what I was seeing. I mean, maybe not all the time, but but for the most part, man, you know, music, music uh, calms the savage beast. Did you feel like do you feel like you won over audiences a lot like you? um you know, maybe you played with different kinds of audiences or different kinds of bands and they weren't so sure about you at first, but then, you know, as soon as they experienced you, they're like, yes, I'm on board with this. Yep. A lot of times you got to break people out of this shell. And then plus, man, you know, I, I myself would love it when we played with bands or crowds that weren't compatible with us because I was like, here's a chance to do some convert. Sure. What kind of bands were incompatible that you would just kind of got excited about playing with red cross mm. red cross was incompatible and for some reason we ended up playing with them quite a bit but then again who was really incompatible when we were trying to play all the styles of music so i guess we were just breaking up breaking them a lot of molds back then you know we we're breaking the mold man yeah it's like i think i was telling you uh last week that I saw you guys play an aftershock right before the uh, lockdown. Uh, I think it was like the end of two, 2019 or the beginning of 2020. And like, that's a metal festival. That's what that's known for up here in Sacramento. And um, you guys played, you guys killed it. The audience was way into it and didn't seem like it, it seemed like a per, like perfectly natural that Fishbone was playing this metal festival um, and then Fisp- you guys could have played a completely different kind of festival. It would have been perfectly natural, too. Yeah. The Aftershock Festival 
Damn, man, that's when uh they had some pretty wild shit going on there, man. They had this one band. They had like what two, three stages, right? Yeah, three stages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, it was this other band over there in the corner. I can't remember, but they were pretty avant-garde metal. It's all like yeah, it's a, it's metal and aggressive music. So yeah, and Fishbone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. After all these years, do the do the shows? Like, are you still able to differentiate the shows from one another when you think about them, or does it all really start to just blur together? Oh, it's blurred together, man. Yeah, a lot of shit's blurred together. I mean, I you know, if I think if I think hard and long enough, I could I could separate. Uh, you know, I could start to separate shows, but yeah, man, big blur, big blur for the most part. Do you uh, do you remember if in the early days do you recall playing the On Club back in L.A.? Oh my God, yeah, dude. On Club, the the Skanksters, Boss Skank was one of the bands that played there, one of the first reggae bands in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Skanksters, and it was a lot of people, man. I remember those were some really good days in there, man. Yeah, lots of beer slinging and skanking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you guys eventually signed to a big label. So David Kahn approaches you guys at some point, right, and says, "I'm I'm interested in signing you guys." Do you recall that and, and what, what you guys felt like when this guy comes up to you? Did you feel um, skeptical or did you or, or did it seem like it was it made sense that you were being approached to be signed? Yeah, well, we thought he was kidding. We didn't know who this guy was. We're like, who the hell are you? You know, why would you want to sign us? You know, that just goes to show where our heads were at. So and that was at the Club Lhasa in Hollywood. And then later on, he came to see us again, I think at the club lingerie maybe. And and he said, I want to sign you guys. And we were like, well, okay, yeah. You know, because he, he let us know that he was serious about signing us. So that's when we got signed to Columbia. Yeah. And uh, didn't he have you do a whole bunch of demo tapes or something? Yep. We did a, we did a demo tape at Capitol Records in Hollywood. Yep. Yeah, but that first, but the demo that the Columbia demo was the first official demo that we did. Actually, a and it got released. Oh, did it on uh, uh, Fishbone One on One? Oh yeah, yeah. Pop- got, that's Pablo right. Matheson released that because he worked at he worked at Columbia, and so that demo tape and those songs were one of the trash can tapes. Man, those are one of the tapes that 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 when a record company. They they sift through the tapes and which ones are garbage and which ones they want to put out. Ours was one of the garbage. Mm. And Pablo was looking through the garbage and he said, what's this fishbone tape doing in here? And he heard it and he's like, man, these motherfuckers are crazy. I'm going to put this shit out. <laughs> and he put out a double CD <laughs> called Fishbone 101. Party at Ground Zero. I, would, I want to talk about that song. Do you recall the when you guys wrote it and everything? I'd love to hear anything about the sort of the writing and creating of that song because I feel like it's such a such a great timeless song. And it's also like ahead of its time too. Like you listen to what bands were doing in the 90s and I feel like Party at Grand Zero could have been released in the mid 90s and people would have been it would have made sense, but you guys released it in the mid 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you say it would have made sense if we released it in, in the in the nineties? I'm saying it, it was it was so ahead of its time 
you guys did what basically bands in the 90s did, but you did it in the 80s and you did it better because Party at Ground Zero is like, is sort of was like the future of ska, really, in my opinion. Oh, Party at Ground Zero is like the future of ska, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it still it still holds up. It's still it's a great song. It's really fun, but it's got a message, you know. Well, you know what, man? It's funny, dude. When I listen to a lot of Second Line, New Orleans Second Line, mm-hmm. and I listen to Party at Ground Zero, that's what that is. It's blues, second line, and ska. Yeah, yeah. Mixed together. A lot of new it's a lot of New Orleans in that song, man. A lot of Mardi Gras in there. Yeah, I can hear that now that you say that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. And I, you know, I didn't know it and nobody really realized it until we started going to New Orleans and we would start just hear hearing a lot of inflections of that that stuff. Uh, you know, that that type of stuff in the music, man. And so I guess we were already doing that already, you know, just because the music that music is a part of black roots yep and so it just came through yeah i mean and that and that music is even in the deep deep roots of ska because that's what the the jamaican music musicians were listening to back in the original ska days was new orleans music that was one of the ingredients anyways yep lots of jazz man jazz ska and punk we were mixing all those together for sure, those three seem those three seem to be seem to be uh, the good components for an easy mix, you know, ska, punk, and 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 jazz. You guys had a level of energy. I don't think that the other bands playing ska had in the eighties, and I think that you sort of set a new standard for bands that came after you. Yeah, I guess you know you know what man. A lot of what a lot of what a lot of ska bands lacked was the soul component in their music. I remember we were looking for, we were looking to get signed at one point, man. And I remember Epitaph told us, well, we like Fishbone, but we don't want to sign you guys because you guys sound like a soul band. And and I remember, because, you know, Epitaph is more, more along the punk rock side, right? So yeah. They were saying uh, Ma and Pa sounded like like an R&B song. And we were scratching our heads like, what do you mean it sounds like an R&B song? <laughs> Ma and Pa is like a ska jam. But when I started listening to a lot of ska, other than Jamaica ska, Jamaican style ska, I listened to what we were playing and then the music that we automatically listen to anyway, which is all funk and soul, a lot of our ska is is soul based. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's soul based, man. So we could easily be some Wilson Pickett or some James Brown or, or, or the Barcase or, or a lot of that, that type of stuff. You know, it's, it already has that component. It's a heavy component in our sky, which is a lot of soul music, you know? So, and a lot of ska bands aren't, they don't have that soul base in them. And, uh, and, you know, I didn't realize that until somebody mentioned it to me. Otherwise, with Fishbone, we were just doing what we do, you know. In the early 90s, you um, uh, you released the song Unyielding Conditioning. 
And um, this, I feel like this is probably one of my favorite Fishbone songs. Did you write the lyrics to this song? Kendall Jones wrote those lyrics. Oh, okay. Do you have, are you, I'm curious, do you have any insight into what he was thinking when he wrote it? Because I really like the lyrics a lot and I have my own thoughts about what it means, but I don't feel like I 100% know what, what is meant behind the lyrics. I'll tell you what it means. So unyielding conditioning. Unyielding means non-stopping, constant. Conditioning means we're conditioned by what we see and hear in our society. You got the news, you got media, you got culture, you got the law. And it's in our face all the time, everywhere you go. It's nonstop. Nonstop boundaries in our culture, in our in our American culture. You got racism, which is another form of unyielding conditioning. Uh, you have you have a lot of a lot of uh, barriers with music, a lot of, uh, see, what's the word I use? I, should, I would use for this. It's like you have a lot of um, categories, segregation and categories with genres of music, which, which I didn't realize were there until way later on when somebody made me realize, oh, there's, there's a, a, a pop category, there's a reggae category, Oh, what kind of music do you play, Angelo? Well, we play reggae, we play rock, we play ska. Okay, yeah, but those are all categories, Angelo, and you can't do it all at the same time. Like, well, what's the category? If you play all of that stuff, what's the category for it? And then somebody said alternative. Oh, alternative, okay. There's a category for people who play all those types of musics that aren't a part of the pop culture. But it's still a category. Just like you have... Uh, a category that was made up for uh, Afro-American vernacular or, or, or Mexican, Mexican vernacular, which is Spanglish or for, or, or Ebonics. Before there was no, before there was no, there was no term called Ebonics. It's just, you just got, this is how black people talk. Yeah, motherfucker, what's up? What's up, dog? Yeah, okay, right. That's how black people talk. But you have street vernacular which which people now have the the label on it called ebonics or you have the way uh mexicans or latinos talk which is called spanglish you got that style of talking too or you have the way white people talk which you really don't have a term for that because because that's the majority uh the popular way to talk which is proper english (laughs) So they don't have a category for that because it's proper English. But if you want to be able to categorize how someone talks and you and you want to be able to say, well, this culture of these race of people, they talk like this. And then you got a name for it. So that's so all of that is unyielding conditioning, just like when you're in the classroom and they want you to stand up and pledge allegiance to the flag. Of the United States of America, for which and for uh, for under republic, for which it understands one nation under God, individual blah, 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 justice for all. Right, that is unyielding conditioning. Every day you see it. Another yield, another unyielding conditioning is the dollar bill. Okay, let me get a little deep here. 
Please. Unyielding conditioning. When you look at the dollar bill and whose face do you see? A white man's face. Now, you don't see a black man's face. You don't see a Mexican's face. You see a white man's face, which, which in turn lets you know that this these white people here are privileged. I don't see my ancestors on there. I see my slave master's face on there, which is a constant reminder and a constant conditioning to let me know this is really is not my country and it's not my society. That's that's some unyielding conditioning right there, right? Yeah. And so it's so many forms of unyielding conditioning that we uh, deal with, live in, and tolerate in our society. So thus the lyrics, unyielding conditioning, tune out from all this happening, right? Then that's what I do. I tune out from everything that's happening, man. I barely watch the news. I don't watch too much television, but I, I every once in a while, I listen to the radio or the news to see what the fuck's going on. And but then I'm, I'm, I'm back into my laboratory or my studio making my music, you know, because I don't really want to be too infected by the conditioning that's going on out there because it really ain't got nothing to do with me. But I, but it's. It's definitely a lot of songwriting material I got in there. It's unyielding conditioning. Tune out from all that's happening. Nobody deserves empathy. Nobody feels for me. We've all been trained by our world. I cannot see. I can't see no one but me. No one can feel my emptiness, right? This is about the person who's not conditioned by, by out there. They're not a part of the robot pop culture. I cannot see no, I can't see no one but me. Nobody feels my, uh, nobody, let me see. I cannot see no one but me. Nobody feels my emptiness. No, no, everybody must fend for themselves. There is no openness. Uh, we've all been tamed by our world, but I've heard of ways where people topple all injustice. So that's when people can break the unyielding conditioning, but it's hard to break it when you see it and hear it every day when you wake up and go outside and you have to jump into the matrix and survive in the matrix of unyielding conditioning, which is our society. And if you decide to go against that, then you're considered a rebel. But then you might be considered what they call being woke, awoke, awake. To, to what's going on out there. And a lot of people don't really want to be woke, man. They just want to follow that nine to five and be, and do the robot, you know? Yeah. It's weird how that's become a pejorative to say something to be woke is to be like, that's bad to be aware. Essentially that's what it means to be aware. Right. It's just being aware. Yeah, man. That's all that is. Yep. Being aware to the reality of your surroundings. Okay. There goes some fishbone shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I mean, I, the way I heard that, like you said, you kind of, kind of how I took it, but yeah, it was like kind of a, ho- a message of hope that you could, that you could fight it, or you could that that it's that it's a worthy endeavor to fight it, that it's worthwhile, that you get something out of fighting it. Yeah, like when I would swing the big fake fuck racism flag around at the at the fishbone shows, 
I'd walk through the audience with a 10 foot pole with a big black and white flag on it that says fuck racism with the fishbone symbol in the middle. Yeah. You ever see me do that? Oh yeah, yeah. You did it at Aftershock. I sure the hell did. Didn't I? <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. Every and it was like every uh, fifteen minutes or so, you'd pull it out, wave it around, wave it around, just remind people that we don't give a fuck about that shit. Everybody, everybody need to love one another. Love your mother, sister, brother. You know whatever color they are, man. Shit, we we got gravity holding us down. You got gravity holding us down, right to the earth. That's why I don't. I never understood racism, man. You got gravity holding us down, right? Uh, and nobody's getting out of here alive. And so, what makes you think that anybody is better than anybody else when when you got when you're looking at that? Racism's so dumb, and I think it's most it's often a tool used to manipulate people. Oh, dude, it's the most narcissistic disease ever. Sometimes you need a little narcissism, man. If you want to go out there and you want to be brave and you be like, hey, I'm good enough to do this or good enough to do that. But when, you're narciss- when the narcissism becomes a thing to where it's like, fuck these other people because I'm better than them, that's when the narcissism is bad. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. But sometimes you need that shit to be able to get up on stage and go, hey, everybody, look at me and listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> what I have to say is important. <laughs> what I got to say is important, and I ain't scared to say it. <laughs> One of my favorite um, in in band, you know, in movie performances ever is the performance you guys did in the movie Tapeheads. Do you remember when you guys were in the movie Tapeheads in the eighties? Yeah, you're. Um, you guys were playing. So you, the scene is you're in a bar uh, and you guys ranch are bone. Right, your ranch bone. You guys are all in cowboy outfits and you're playing sl- <laughs> slow bus <laughs> moving, right? Slow bus moving. That's right. Amazing. So good. Yeah. Slow bus moving, man. And it's st- and the bus is still moving slow. As a matter of fact, it's moving slower than it was before. You think the bus would have sped up by now. Yep, sometimes the bus goes backwards, right? Sometimes the bus goes backwards, dude. I'm like, really? <laughs> After all, you know, sometimes I forget, man. Sometimes I forget that it's so racist out there. Yeah. I forget about that shit, man. I'm like, I turn on the news sometime, or I hear some stories about people getting attacked from some racist motherfuckers. I'm like, really? People are still doing that shit? Yeah, I just, yeah. The way people have been emboldened in, in recent years, you know, like stuff they probably thought privately or said to their like couple of close racist friends. Now they feel emboldened to say publicly or to act out in public. Yeah. It is definitely disheartening. It's some wild shit, man. You know, like all I got to tell them is, hey, man, we ain't getting out of here live. We all going to end up one color anyway. Yep. And that's the color of dirt. <laughs> <laughs> we all gonna end up who's fucking dirt pile on the ground you stupid yeah. motherfucker so you know <laughs> what you tripping on man <laughs> oh god i'll tell you something though dude that just reminds me of trump right so trump trump was he was the most entertaining sensationalist guy he had some racist shit going on. He had the racists believing that they had a voice. That was the only fucked up thing about him, man. But other than that, he and you know, and he 
you know, as 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 a TV personality and a sensationalist and an entertainment factor, he was like top of the line, right? Mm-hmm. Batman couldn't be Batman wasn't shit without the Joker or the Riddler. <laughs> Every time Batman would come on, you'd be like, okay, Batman's he's the good guy, you know. But oh shit, this crazy motherfucker with green hair and question marks is coming up and and makeup on and oh shit, how's he gonna? What's he gonna do now, right? So every time Trump would come on in the morning on the news, man, actually that gave me a more of a reason to watch the news, man. <laughs> Seeing how this fool is gonna get out of his next fuck up. <laughs> I was like, how's this Archie Bunker looking motherfucker gonna get out of this fuck up now? <laughs> and I loved Archie Bunker, dude. I fucking loved it. Those were the days. Yeah, man. Okay. But he does not need to be, pre- he did not need to be president. He needed to have his own TV show, comic book, cartoon. Perfect, man. No, he don't need to be running motherfuckers' lives. Definitely not. Biden and Camilla, that's like Batman and Catwoman, right? So, you know, they're kind of boring. They're, but they're level and they're level headed. They're kind of boring. But I feel a little safer now. I feel safer with them in there, man. Rather than rather than Trump, who's uh, you know, he's always he always got people. It's like a roller coaster ride, roller coaster ride with no seatbelt, motherfucker. You better be hanging the fuck on. <laughs> Boring is a good qualification for being a president. <laughs> Boring is a good one, man. Boring is good, especially when it comes to a country of of people whose culture is just dysfunctional from the gate. Do you remember anything about the shoot at Tapeheads? Do you remember, like, was it the director's idea to make you guys a ranch bone or was that your guys' idea? I think it was the director's idea. Was it John Cusack that specifically got you guys on the, sh- on the movie? Because I know he's like a big fan of you guys, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he was a fan of the band, yeah. Yeah, did he, did he come talk to you guys and, and like fan out on you? Probably. <laughs> I remember I remember Kuzak in and out of the picture. You know, we didn't really know who anybody wasn't nobody famous back then. We were all just out in, out in the same scene. Right. John Kuzak, Tim Robbins, Gary Oldman was was in and out of there too. And then we all got and then we all grew up and got signed up. And that's when all of this the splitting took place. Everybody got separated after we all got signed. Chili Peppers, no doubt. James Addiction. Yeah. Yeah, man. And you know, and and then when I think about it too, it's like, okay, when I think about how we all got separated and uh and the subject matters we were talking about. Um, mm-hmm. from a from a black perspective, living in a white society. We would we would just end up singing about some kill whitey type type of shit because that was just our reality, dude. Fuck, I used to get chased home by the goddamn rednecks at night, getting off the 420 bus, coming back from LA in the Woodland Hills. Sometime I get chased, man. I have my saxophone in one hand and my backpack on and my radio in the other. I remember when reality and my surroundings came out and there was all this like there was all this talk about that you guys were gonna blow up. And then it didn't happen. I remember like years later, because I was a really big fan of you guys and that album. But I remember listening to it again later. And I was like, man, the stuff they're talking about on this album. No wonder they didn't blow up. People were not talking about this stuff in alternative rock and roll, you know, stuff that was just not really being talked about. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. You go back to the same, was it 90, 91? Like, what other bands were talking about that that kind of stuff? Probably Public Enemy. Public Enemy, yeah. And that was and that was hip-hop. So that was a whole different uh, genre altogether. But the experience, the, the Black American uh, and Latino American experience is still the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're at the bottom of the social totem pole. You're constantly being squished out of everything. And it's a constant pushback because we we were here before all of that shit was happening anyway. You either had the Latinos who were here before, Latinos and Indians who were here before anybody, or you had black people that were brought here and instantly made slaves. And then white people were running everything, you know? And so it's that, that whole dysfunction has been in the culture from the beginning, right? But nobody really wants to hear any of that because that's exposing the monster. Yep. So wasn't nobody really... Nobody wasn't really trying to talk about that, you know, have that in the open. You know, they talk about Jack Daniels and uh, and guns and shit. But uh, talking about racism, well, that really wasn't, wasn't nobody really trying to make an extra effort to put that out there, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you guys were standing alone on that front? Oh, well, yeah, especially playing, especially playing the majority of white audiences because we played rock. Because we played rock. That uh, that's what was just that's that's what made it a little difficult for us to get through because some of the subject matter we'd end up singing, and then the visual, the visual, you know, you see a bunch of black guys playing rock, and that really ain't ain't that ain't supposed to go together. Yeah, we're supposed to be playing R and B and funk or reggae if you got dreadlocks, you know. So you got all them stereotypes <laughs> out there that uh stereotypes man that, that make it hard to accept something like that when it when it shouldn't be all about what you're seeing shit man it's all about what you hear and feel you guys played soul train in i think it was probably the 80s you did uh freddy's dead do you remember that yeah we played that on soul train yep we did a lip sync yeah so so <laughs> good because the energy is you could like definitely like the wildest clip I've ever seen from Soul Train, but um also the you guys are having fun with the lip sync part, which I really I loved. Like Fish, he's got his bass drum flipped upside ups upright. And he's, oh, yeah, and he's he, like yeah. he's overtly not playing the drum beat in sync at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, and we were jumping around and fucking shit it's like it's like, oh my God, we didn't give a fuck because we just wanted to be we just wanted to be as as ridiculous as we could mm-hmm. in front of that audience, which is the r b audience man, because we like we got something more crazier and powerful than this shit that ain't nobody ever seen or heard before, yeah, you know, and that's probably how we were thinking back then. What do you remember the audience reaction being for that performance? God, I can't even remember man i mean i I guess you know people were dancing, but I, I guess people are doing a whole lot more looking and my and jaw dropping <laughs> than a lot of dancing. <laughs> I love I love um when the host uh, Don Cornelius he comes out at the end he's kind of like whoa uh, yeah if we uh, I don't know if the stage can handle it if you guys came here every week or something like that. <laughs> yeah, Don Cornelius, man, wow, I can't believe I actually got to talk to him. You you were saying when he was asking you like what kind of music you play, you go we you know our our genre is Fishbone. 
Um, and then you like talked about all the styles that Fishbone plays, but you're like, but not disco and not house beat. Yeah, disco and the house beat. We didn't do that. <laughs> no disco. <laughs> no, no disco, man. But we uh, funny because I would go to the clubs and I would dance to disco all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, disco's great. Not too much. Not too much house though. I never really got into too much house or techno. I would get into Afro-Cuban house. I would dig that and a lot of Fela Kuti. I like Fela Kuti, man. West African. See King Sunny Day, Fela Kuti, and a lot of that stuff. And Linton Queasy Johnson. That was another reggae artist I liked a lot. Oh, he's he's a genius. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some those are some amazing, like uh like I guess you would just call them poems, really. I don't know. Yeah. Spoken word, spoken, spoken word yeah. over reggae. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant stuff. That's one guy that made me realize that I could, I could do my spoken word over reggae, like over reggae music, reggae, ska, funk. You know, not too much punk rock because punk rock didn't have too much breathing space in, in the style of music. But all the other styles had a lot of breathing space. So you can get your words in there. I remember when um, you put out the Doctor Mad Vibe record with Asian Man, and uh, I remember Mike. Mike just saying, like, like I was like, oh, have you heard it? And and he's just like, I don't even care what it is. Like, it's Angelo. I'm gonna put it out. <laughs> he was so so excited just to just to do something with you. Oh, Mike Park, dude, I love yeah. that motherfucker, man. Oh yeah, Mike Park. He 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 produced my first spoken word CD called a Yin Yang yeah. Thing. He gave me about a thousand. Over a thousand CDs. He did my first print, man, and I still have some of them left from back in the day. Yeah, man, still got some of those left, man. Those are those, those are those are good ones. So I, I remember in that in that time period that that came out, uh, Mike was doing the Plea for Peace tour, and a couple of those dates you you rolled out and did a spoken word between the bands. Do you remember doing that? Uh, oh yeah, man. Yep. I remember you were on stage at Gilman and you were you were playing playing horn and doing doing spoken word. Yeah. I used to do that a lot on the boardwalk too, man. Venice Beach Boardwalk. When did you get started doing spoken word? Like the Onyx Cafe in the 80s. The Onyx Cafe, the boardwalk at Venice Beach, Beyond Baroque in Santa Monica. Uh yeah, man, lots of poetry, and and I was inspired a lot by Linton Queasy Johnson and the last poets, Jello B. Afro. Man, I was really inspired by Jello B. Afro and Henry Rollins. I remember I went to Henry Rollins to release my first poetry book that I put out at the first Lollapalooza, and he said, "No, man, I don't do that type of stuff. You'll have to go down the street for that." He didn't want to put out your book. Man, my my feelings were so hurt. Damn. And then I said, fuck that motherfucker. I'm going to release my <laughs> own book. So I got with a guy named John, named Michael Goodnight. And he worked at Kinko's. And Michael Goodnight helped me. And when Kinko's would close, we go in there and put my book together. Uh, you, we put out my first book, man. We run that press at Kinko's after they were closed, dude. And I put up my first book. And I was like, fuck you, Henry Rollins. I love your music. I love Black Flag, but fuck you. And I guess that's what you're supposed to say. If it's punk rock, right? So good. It's right on time. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's such a clutch move to have somebody who works works in like a copy center 
or knows how to do the thing at Kinko's where back in the day they had the cartridge that kept the counter, like if you were making flyers or zines, and then you could drop that thing and it would reset the counter. Yeah. And then you just (laughs) just run a couple more copies. Uh Yeah, I only only did like 10. Really, you did like 500. (laughs) Ah, yeah, there you go. That was the move. That's right, creating that revolution with your own means, man. Yep. I love the spoken word bits on um, reality, my surroundings. Those are, are I love them. The fantastic, fuck the meter maid. Oh yeah, fuck the meter maid <laughs> and junkie's prayer, right? Jane, junkie's prayer on there. Yeah, yeah. I just got a ticket recently, so that shit still stands for the day. Yeah, uh, yeah. It it <laughs> bears repeating. Fuck the meter maid. Yeah. Yeah, dude. So that's you know. <laughs> I remember we were in front of Pink's Hot Dogs and we did our first video. I parked my low rider in front of Pink's, and I. Waited for the, and we had the whole band there, man, on the sidewalk. We waited for that meter maid to come up, put a ticket on my car. <laughs> and when we busted out in the meter, we busted out in the song, Fuck the Meter Maids. <laughs> we played it. We filmed it. I don't know where that video is at now, but that's what we did. <laughs> <laughs> there's like a video, I don't know if it's the same one, but there's a video of you doing all of the different spoken word parts of reality man surrounding like one after another like on the street on i've seen i've seen that on youtube it's awesome man i was really into doing like a lot of poetry and spoken word man i was just like a junkie with that shit and then after a while all of those poems ended up turning into songs and i just i've been singing them with the missing links or the brand new step which is another project of mine it's like a more contemporary dance music disco ball type of thing and uh, it's a it's we got two albums out. We have a shitload of videos. We have a website called Angela Morning Brand New Step. We've done a couple of tours: Taiwan, Japan. We did a run in the East Coast, and uh, it's really good, man. Nice, it's really good. If you look up the Brand New Step, go to YouTube, look up the Brand New Step. You can see all my videos there, man. In San Francisco, in like. 2008 there was a project called the Jejun Institute oh Jejun yeah and there was a radio station yeah you could only listen to in Dolores Park you had to rent a boom box to listen to it and there was a familiar voice on there (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know about Uh, this because I remember when the Jejun Institute came out Jejun and then the other opposite from that which was in the same institute Jejun and uh the Elsewhere Philadelphia. That Elsewhere, system. what was it called? The uh, Elsewhere Public Works Agency. The Elsewhere Public Works Agency, that's right, Elsewhere. I remember Kerry James was a part of that. Kerry James hit me to that. And he played in Dizzy Bam. That was the name of his band he played. He played bass in Dizzy Bam. Cool. So, so how did you get hooked up with that whole situation? The nonchalance. Yeah, the nonchalance. And then there was... The jejun, the nonchalance, and the um, the, the so the the whole story revolves around this character, uh, Ava Lucian, uh, who you know was, uh, was supposed to have disappeared in the eighties, and she was part of a, a punk art co op called the SF Savants, hmm. um, and so it was this whole idea of this uh, shadowy organization that had uh, stolen her away and stolen her memories. 
and this group, the the Elsewhere Public Works Agency, who were fighting against the Jeju Institute, and they were trying to save Eva. And it was there was this there were all these puzzles that that would lead you all over the Bay Area. That's right. Having these these different experiences. That's right. And you'd end up in this building on the twelfth floor. Yep. And you go in there, and I, I never made it there, but I would see how <laughs> it looked on the on the screen. You got to follow yeah. the street signs, and then there's like a sign, like some graffiti written on the side of a building somewhere, and you can go follow mm-hmm. that, and then you, yeah, yep, I remember that, you know. And eventually, it turned into another organization. Man, my ex girl was in there. A girl I used to go out with named Fairuz Gibson. Man, she was she jumped into that whole thing. Yeah, so it was probably the latitude. The latitude, right? Yep. So there, the 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 that whole thing spawned a, a secret organization called the Latitude. Yep. Uh, which existed for a couple of years in San Francisco. Yep, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and then, right, so that I remember all of that shit. And then uh, I would work with this circus a lot called the Vaudevere Society Circus. Uh huh. You hip to Vaudevere? I think I think I've I think I know the group you're talking they about. They did yeah. the soil dove. They do the, they build a big oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. soil dove, the big tent in the middle of San Francisco, and so they had me in there. I've been working with them since the '80s, man. I'm proud to say. Well, see, were you performing in those soil dove shows? Yeah. Wow, I never. I if I'd known that, I would have gone. Oh, dude, I was in there. I was doing some oh, MCing, man. and I would play with some of the band, and I'd sing some of the songs that they. They, they had going on. Yeah, man, that was a real good time, that one. Yeah, I actually, I in Alameda, where I live, there's there was a, a gym that I worked at, and there was a, you know, it's out on an old naval base, and there's this big empty area, and out on that empty area, I could look out the window from where we were doing these classes, and I could see the tent for the soiled dove. So little did I know. <laughs> I was right Angela in there. Moore I was, was probably, in there. Angelo Moore was in there. Yeah. MC in the show and I missed it. Uh, Damn. <laughs> so one of, one of the other things I wanted to ask about, just because one of the things that always comes up from all the different people who talk about Fishbone as a, as a, a source of inspiration, everybody talks about your live show and the level of energy and musicianship that you guys bring every time you played. How, what sort of like pre-show routines did you guys have to get that hype? to get be able to perform at that level like now do you do you stretch out now before you get on stage or do you just get up there sometimes i stretch not that i just get up there. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love it <laughs> I just get up just get up there and do what you gotta do do what i gotta do you know i try to remember to stretch but i you know when i get up there and i play the music i just i just wait for the music to take me man you know it usually happens but it's funny, man, with the missing links, I'm really, I put myself in a position where I can't move because mm-hmm. I'm playing organ. I'm playing organ and I'm singing, which opens up a whole nother side of my brain that I usually wouldn't use, you know, because playing organ, and I play double tier organ. So with my left hand, I do a lot of the bass line, my right hand, I'm holding the chords. And then I got my theremin up there too. So all of these things, the organ and the theremin, they require the theremin and the organ require for me to stand still and play and sing. So it's not a lot of dancing going on. 
Yeah. But I'm doing a lot of, I'm driving the bus, man. I was talking to this guy who um, runs the this club in Santa Cruz called Moe's Alley. And uh, Moe's Alley is kind of a, it, it typically has like more mellow music. And he was telling me that in like 2007 or eight, he booked you guys to play. And um, he's like, yeah, they're, I figured they're, you know, they're kind of an older band at this point. So they probably make sense to play at Moe's. And then once you guys played, it was like insanity. And he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, man. That's so good. See, it's good to get the insanity out. Let people know you can lose your wig if you want to. <laughs> yeah. You know, just don't hurt nobody. Shit. So um, Jeff Rosenstock just put out the Ska Dream album. And you recorded a, a saxophone solo for it. I think Mike Park might have hooked it up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mike Park might have just yep. sang the song and said, hey, can you play a solo on this? Yep, I sure did. Now that I think about it, yeah, it's a really good song, man. Yeah, your solo is fantastic. Your yeah. solo makes that song. <laughs> yeah, man, I was really happy about that. Did you just, like, nail a single solo, or did you do several takes, or do you remember? I probably did. I probably did several takes. Yeah. You know, I put it together, and then later on, if I got to play it, well, I got to learn that shit. <laughs> got to learn it. If you're going to put some crazy shit together, I think to myself, as I'm putting it together, I'm thinking, okay, later on, somewhere down the line, I'm going to have to learn how to play this straight through live. Yeah. So it gives me a challenge. Uh, you know, it gives me a challenge to keep me on my toes, which I, which I, I do a lot. I'll piece some crazy shit together, and then I'm like, okay, now I got to learn it. <laughs> I love a good Barry sax solo too. Just that like nice beat, bassy solo, which you did on that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, un unyielding as well. Yeah. Yeah. The unyielding solo is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That baritone solo on there is one. You know, that's another one I had fun recreating live. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I got that. And then, I, oh yeah, right. This is the Ska show. Right. Okay. So I got a <laughs> release called Ska Do or uh, Ska Don't. You do? And what's this? What is this? It's called Ska Do or Ska Don't, and it's a coffee table book that has music that goes with it. There's a lot of ska jams on there. I do three Japanese tunes, and I convert it into, into English, and I redid the music. Uh, I did some ska and reggae covers, Bob Marley, Prince Buster, and everything. And then there's some originals on there, too, but it has a coffee table book with lyrics to go with the music that I did with uh, Christine Forbes from from uh, Scotch Bonnets. Oh, okay. And and then I did, and then there's some Japanese musicians in there. I did, the, I redid these Japanese songs when I was in Tokyo. And I put it out, put it on the thumb drive, and I put it with the book. You can order it on my site, drmad5.com. Yeah, when did you release this? Oh man, it's been out for like it's been out for five, six years now. I feel like it oh, okay. feels like you know, but I'm still I'm selling it all myself, man. You know, sell it myself, put it on a website, sell it like that, sell it at the shows. Sometimes going through these corporate corporate channels is too damn hard, man. You know, it's too much red tape and it takes too long. I'm like I might as well just do this myself, man. You know, keeping it, it DIY. Yeah, it may take a little longer, but at least I don't have to chase people that don't want to be caught or like to be chased. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Not want to be caught. 
You know, I ain't got time for that shit. Life's too short, man. Oh, and then I got another art project called Avant Presidents. You can you can see it on the legacyofangelo.com. What is it? Where I take Lincoln, Kennedy, and Obama, and I embellish them with poetry and paint. And it's a fine art piece. I sold 10 of them already. Nice. Oh yeah, man. It's gonna be it's it's gonna be good when I when it comes out. I'm, that's some stuff I'm organizing now. Oh, and then the and then the brand new step has we have some shows in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, Where are you gonna be playing? Uh, the Ween After Party in Vegas. Ween After Party in Vegas. And then uh, my documentary comes out November fourth. It's called a Forevermore project. That's going to be in Utah at the Dixie Dixie University in Utah. Nice. What's that documentary going to be about? It's about me. Just you? Yeah. Did, oh, wait. Did, so okay. So I think I misunderstood. I was thinking that you were the one that made the documentary. No, but it's just a documentary about you. Girl named Tisa Zito. Okay. The film professor at Dixie University, and she came to L.A. and put together a documentary on me because she feels like people need to know about me. And I'm really glad she feels that way because she put together a really good documentary, man. Well, cool. Can't wait to see it. Nice. Yeah, yeah. it's good. It was in a it was great. in a couple of film festivals, you know, film festival dealers. It's another hard one where you, you got to chase people and get ready to hear a bunch of no's, but then maybe you'll hear two yeses and about 50 no's. You know, and then my and then the brand new step is playing at that documentary. Nice. And then the next day is my birthday. Well, happy birthday. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Which one's that gonna be for you? Oh, November fifth. No, well, I mean, what, Bert, how, how old are you going to be? Oh, 56. 56. That's right, man. Nice. Yep. 56. Sometimes I can't believe it. Shit, I don't feel it. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, right? Uh-huh. My 46th birthday is in a couple weeks. Oh, well, all right, man. Well, congratulations. <laughs> We're making it, yeah. you know? We're making it. Do you ever look look back and, and just feel like... Like time is is an illusion. <laughs> like like you're still the same person you've always been, but you just and you just keep looking at the clock roll by, looking at the clock roll by, and then when daylight savings time comes into the picture, <laughs> it really makes it it really makes it an illusion for me, because you know if time is really real, then who gave a human authority? To change time, take away an hour, put an hour on. What kind of crazy shit is that? Yeah. And then not do it in, in certain parts of Arizona. And <laughs> not do it in certain parts of Arizona. Really? Yeah. That always messed me up on tour. We'd be crossing the, you know, crossing into another time zone and then realize, oh, they don't do daylight savings. That's here. crazy, dude. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. <laughs> See? So who is fucking with us? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> who's who's behind that curtain? Who's behind curtain. the curtain? Who's the jerk behind the curtain? Get him. Yeah, get his ass. You know, and so <laughs> I think about that and I think about just the earth spinning around the sun and there's the 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 earth is spinning out here, uh, you know, in outer space and you know, you, you think about that, we turn away 
and toward the sun, which they call day and night. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you think to yourself, what is time? What is really reaching the top? You know, what is heaven? Heaven is a, oh, heaven, up there in heaven. Okay, but then when you're looking at, when you go out in a spaceship and you're looking at planet Earth, <laughs> which is out there, we're out there. So heaven is out there, right? Mm-hmm. Then hell must be underground on the planet, which is such a small space. Yeah. You know, and I think about all this, all these different philosophies and how shit is and everything. I'm just, man, you know, making it to the top when there is no top. But your journey there is supposed to be the joyful part, you know, or how much money you have in this society. But you need money to to have the perks that they're, they're, that are here in this in the, on the Matrix, if you're living in the Matrix. Otherwise, if you're living off the grid, and I know some people that live off the grid, they don't have no money, and they live in their car, or maybe behind a bush or a garbage can or some shit, or maybe a hole dug in the side of a mountain or under the, re- or, or under the freeway, and they're living there from a whole different perspective, and a perspective of life and they got different things to appreciate rather than having a car or a house that you got to pay a note on and you got to go go to this building and have a boss somebody who's the boss over you you have to obey somebody else's rules and you know do like that for the greater good of somebody else rather than just yourself to make money with the white guy on the front, who's supposed to be privileged, more privileged than you if you're a different color. You got all this other shit going on, and then you got the law and the police who are run by some other people who are privileged and don't really care about certain people, but then they do care about others. And you got all that kind of shit going on. It's like, goddamn man, what is really the purpose in life? What is there that what what's there that's really precious? What is it? What is what does precious mean to you? These different things in this world that we live in. Sometimes money sounds like it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> but everybody's trying to get it. You know? And yeah, so all those things I think about, man, as I'm as I'm living my life here on this terra firma plane, man. You know, the things that make you happy. I I got this poem called Living the Lifestyle of the Famous But Not Rich. So, yeah, I'm famous. I traveled the world, played in front of all these people. But but my financial status isn't where, where one would expect it to be doing what I do. So where so what do I consider rich, precious and full of flavor? Is it really having a big house, big car, pool, bitches, lots of money and all that? And some of these people who have all of that stuff, do they really own it? You can't take it to the grave with you. And some of them are so miserable too. And some of them are so miserable that, with that shit. Some people are happy with it. Some people are miserable. So so then how is your, how is your, your temple on the inside? 
inside? How do you really, what's precious to you inside of yourself? When you're in the closet all by yourself, what are you happy with? What are you happy singing with? The words that you like to say, the way you like to feel. When you're in the closet, whatever that means, as opposed to when you're out and around people, when you have something to compare yourself to, when you're looking around at other people and what other people have, you know, and, and all and all that, <laughs> you know, then you just got to, you got to keep it in prayer, man. Make sure you love your brother, love your mother, love your sister, dad, uncle, aunt, grandma, grandpa, dog, cat, bird, turtle. That's what I say at the, at the end of all of it. Make sure you love your neighbor, man. Shit. Definitely. That's the most important. No matter how weird it gets, that's what it come down to. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.